hello, hello. This is Monica, and uh, this is Remembering the Misremembered. Um, this is part three, the conclusion of um, the Ronnie Spector story, which I hope you've enjoyed. Um, I usually, as some of you know, don't do uh, these type of series and go this in depth with people's lives but um i thought this story was pretty interesting and it was just hard to just gloss over it because it's a lot of interesting details so i just decided to just put the details <clears throat> excuse me in the book i mean the details from the book in this story because um it's a story i feel that's worth telling um i really did not know that ronnie and phil were a, a real couple. I think I may have mentioned that before. I didn't know they were real. I thought, you know, that he had somehow just tricked her into being with him and that the marriage was a part of the big trick. But, you know, I didn't know that they were, you know, they were really boyfriend and girlfriend. They were really, you know, so-called in love at first and, you know, all of that. But anyway, let me um, get on into this conclusion because we have a lot to cover. Um, you know, the future of the Spectre marriage was actually pretty grim at this point. Um, outside of the adoption of baby Dante Phillip, there was nothing to look forward to and no success was forthcoming. Phil pulled out all the stops to make people believe that the uh, mixed-race baby boy who Ronnie saw on a TV documentary about unwanted babies was his and Ronnie's biological child. Ronnie wasn't really seen publicly during that time, but whenever someone visited the mansion, Phil insisted that she wear a pillow under her clothes. And soon, birth announcements were sent out about Ron, Ronnie and Phil's premature baby boy, who weighed a suspicious 11 pounds because he was actually several weeks old and was a full-term baby. But nobody seems to have questioned it. Dante, as I said, brought some happiness into the Spectre home. But not very much. Uh, Ronnie wanted to be a hands-on mother, but Phil insisted that a governess do most of the work. He told her, just because you love him doesn't mean you have to change his diapers. He asked Ronnie, who's going to watch the baby while you're in the studio? He dangled that promise of stardom in her face, and when she asked when they were going into the studio, he snapped at her, calling her a self-centered bitch, and told her that he had other things on his mind besides her career. Ultimately, Ronnie accepted the governess as she did all of Phil's ideas. Beatrice spent a lot of time at the mansion, too, following Dante's arrival. There's a humorous story involving Phil sending Beatrice to Watts to get him an Afro wig. Phil had a kind of black complex where at times he seemed to truly believe that he was black, and he was in desperate need of a new toupee for his rapidly balding head. Over the years, he would spend big money on Afro wigs made by white wig makers, and they always looked a hot mess. Ronnie accompanied her mom to the wig shop in order to find the perfect wig for Phil. They bought three wigs and set them on the kitchen table, still in their boxes. Phil was always particular about the look of his wigs and might spend hours trying to perfect the look. If he couldn't get it looking just right and he and Ronnie were supposed to go out, they wouldn't go anywhere. But Phil was very impressed with these wigs and excited to start wearing them. Once he placed one on his head, it seems to have made him feel black. How black? 
black enough to go to hear some gospel music at the church of the one and only king of gospel music, James Cleveland. So Ronnie, Beatrice, and Phil got into the limo flanked by two bodyguards, and Phil was packing one pistol. They went rolling into Watts, one of the most urban areas of L.A. Phil kept getting emotional during the sermon and frequently shouted amen. When the time came to fill the collection plate, Phil jumped up before anybody could stop him. He had on an Afro wig on he had an Afro wig on his head, a hundred dollar bill in his hand, and a pistol in his pocket. Ronnie could only pray that it wouldn't fall out. It was both funny and embarrassing the way people stared at Phil as they worked their way through the crowd and got into the waiting limo after the service. But Phil was proud of himself. In his mind, he had proven that he wasn't just any old white dude. But there weren't going to be many more funny moments after this. In fact, things got pretty dramatic as Ronnie's drinking increased along with Phil's escalating weirdness. Phil tried to prevent Ronnie's drinking by placing a padlock on the cabinet that housed the spirits. Of course, it didn't work. Drinkers always find a way and Ronnie was far from an exception to that rule. There was a drunk driving incident where Ronnie almost drove off a cliff and was rescued by some kind hippies who called Phil. I think she had uh, Phil's information in her purse or something. And when she woke up, Phil was peering down at her, you know, when she regained consciousness at the hippie's house. This was the moment when both Phil and Ronnie forced, were forced to acknowledge the fact that Ronnie needed help, and she needed it badly. Phil sent her straight to a psychiatrist. And she enjoyed unburdening her heart and not being judged. It would have been great to keep seeing the psychiatrist, but when he suggested that Phil might also be in need of help, Phil was infuriated and refused to pay for any more sessions. That was that. Ronnie just drank and drank and drank. Phil told Beatrice that Ronnie refused to eat or drink or really do much of anything outside of drinking. Sometimes it did seem like Phil wanted to help Ronnie, but he was a huge part of the problem. What she really needed to do was cut ties with him. It slowly began to dawn on her one day as she watched Phil training the guard dogs, giving them a cruel stare and saying in a scary voice, I will control you. He might as well have been speaking to Ronnie. He was controlling her and he had stared at her in that same way many times before. This triggered something in Ronnie, and it brought up feelings of intense hatred for Phil. In 1970, the Beatles invited Phil to come to London to work with them as a producer on their Let It Be album. Because Phil didn't want to fly back and forth from London to the West Coast, he got an apartment in New York for him, Ronnie, and Dante. Ronnie was able to take Dante, who was starting to walk, for walks in Central Park. While she was there, she wasn't depressed and she didn't drink. Phil was happy working with the Beatles at Apple Records, too. He seemed to be feeling confident. He would come home and play the long and winding road and My Sweet Lord and have Ronnie sing them over and over again. He was beginning to dangle that carrot in front of Ronnie's nose again, asking her if she thought that she might want to record anything in the vein of these songs. Then a few days later, he was in London calling Ronnie bright and early in the morning telling her to call her mother because she was going to need her to watch Dante while Ronnie was in the studio. Ronnie was beyond excited by the prospect of recording again. There was more good news. Pete Bennett of Apple Records called Ronnie a few minutes after she talked to Phil to inform her that she had been signed to Apple Records. 
So Ronnie traveled to London with Beatrice and little Dante. They went from Heathrow Airport straight to the inn on the Park Hotel where a luxury suite awaited. The following day, Ronnie went to Abbey Road Studios. For the first time, Ronnie's stage name was discussed. Remember, she was known to the world as Ronnie of the Ronettes or Ronnie Bennett. Phil had wanted her to call herself Veronica, which is what he called her and it was her given name, but nobody knew her as Veronica. John Lennon and George Harrison felt that Ronnie Spector was the best name to use. She agreed and that's the name she would use for all time, even after she and Phil divorced, forever tying her to Phil and his legendary wall of sound, for better or worse. Ronnie was presented with a George Harrison composition called Try Some Buy Some. At this point, Ronnie was sure that this right here was the pinnacle of her career. George began cranking out the slow melody and started singing in a high-pitched, bizarre chant. Ronnie could not make sense of the lyrics. They were strange and not something that she could relate to. She voiced her concerns, admitting that she didn't really like the song. George shrugged and said that he didn't like it either. Ronnie couldn't understand why she was seemingly intentionally being given poor material that the songwriter didn't even like, but they started trying to record it anyway. The background track was not even in Ronnie's key. Phil insisted that it was. Was this an attempt at gaslighting or was Ronnie so rusty that she no longer knew her key? Or after not really singing for three years and steadily smoking cigarettes and drinking heavily, had her key changed? They cut the song and listened to the playback. Ronnie prayed for a miracle, but she had to face the fact that this was not a good record. I've heard many singers talk about not singing what they don't feel, and Ronnie should have followed her instincts. When she offered to add more vibrato to her singing, Phil nixed the suggestion with the lie that vibrato was for the 60s and that nobody wants to hear that anymore. The B-side was another weirdo called Tandoori Chicken based on Indian food. Buy One, Try One went no higher than number 77 on the charts when it was released, then plunged rapidly into oblivion from there. The whole experience was one of the most disappointing that Ronnie had had at this time. Her career was in the same condition that it had been when she arrived. These songs were obviously flops. Her time with Apple was over. Phil got Beatrice a plane ticket to return to New York. Imagine Ronnie's disappointment when she realized that she and Dante would be returning to Los Angeles and not to the idyllic life in New York. It was back to the confines of the mansion for Ronnie. Back at the mansion, Ronnie and Phil had a fight about Citizen Kane. He wanted to watch it and she did not. Phil could not abide being defied and tried to banish Ronnie to their bedroom. He attempted to lock her in. While he fumbled with the keys, Ronnie walked through the bathroom, down the stairs and into the servant's entrance, casually speaking to George Johnson as he jauntily chopped tomatoes in the kitchen. She had successfully gotten out of the mansion in her slippers, which she kicked off when she got outside. She had run away from home. Tears coated her eyes as she walked down the road barefoot. During this little foray away from the mansion, Ronnie found herself in the home of a kind woman named Phyllis. She spent a number of hours there. They made small talk. Phyllis had no idea who this barefoot stranger was. They shared a cup of tea and a joint, Ronnie's first ever. A couple of Phyllis's neighbors dropped in to say hi. All they could talk about is how excited they were about the Diana Ross concert they were going to. Ronnie sat there feeling some type of way. 
she was Ronnie of the Ronettes, and these guys had no idea who she even was. They sang Diana Ross songs and had her movements down pat. This really depressed Ronnie, hearing these men gush over Diana Ross and even the Supremes, knowing that she had been a Ronette and they didn't even know who she was. Ronnie felt the need for a drink and she asked for one. She got drunk enough that Phyllis drove her home and was shocked to see that Ronnie lived in a mansion up the hill. She even asked her if she was sure she lived there. Ronnie laughed, bid the woman goodbye and drunkenly stumbled from the servant's entrance to the bedroom. It was after 7 p.m. She made it to the bedroom and once she got to the bed she had a seizure. She lost consciousness and woke up in a sanitarium. Ronnie found heaven on earth in the sanitarium. It seemed like any place she went that was away from the mansion was like heaven. Here there were always things to do and always somebody to talk to. Volleyball games were commonplace. Current magazines and newspapers were available. Ronnie was there when she first heard the Carole King album, Tapestry. They even had a field trip where they saw a live taping of the Carol Burnett show. Phil complained about Ronnie being there because it was expensive and she only spent 10 days there, but she went back a few more times. She would get crazy drunk, pass out, and go back just because she needed a break from Phil and life in the dusty old mansion. Phil seemed desperate to hold on to Ronnie. One day after picking her up from the sanitarium, their driver took them to a playground. Ronnie had no idea why they were there until Phil explained to her that the six-year-old twin boys they were watching play from, from afar were up for adoption. The boys, Gary and Lewis, were Phil's Christmas present for Ronnie in 1971. She didn't want this. Her hands were full living in this 23-room mansion married to an eccentric and dealing with a toddler and worsening alcoholism. It was just too much to add two more fully formed children into the mix. She had found another great escape, Alcoholics Anonymous. The AA meetings taught Ronnie that she was a periodic alcoholic who drank during very stressful times. Since her life with Phil was always stressful, she spent more time drinking than she might otherwise. Phil had a secret drinking problem of his own, discovered by none other than Ronnie's mom, Beatrice, who found his bottle of creme de mint stashed away in the game room. Ronnie had hoped that Phil would become so disgusted with her that he would just kick her out, but it was clear that this would never happen. If she wanted to be free, she would have to free herself. Less than six months after the arrival of the twins, Ronnie and Phil Spector would have the final confrontation of their marriage. They got into it because Ronnie came home late from an AA meeting, and Phil had locked all the doors to the mansion. Ronnie was let in by her mother. When Phil saw her, he angrily insulted her, wanting to know why she was late. Was it another man? She saw that mad look start to cloud Phil's face and started to back into her mother's room. Phil lunged at Ronnie, knocking her to the floor where they struggled. She kicked him, which made it easy for him to snatch her shoe right off her foot. He was reeking of creme de mint, a drink which turned his teeth green and had a disgusting smell. He tucked her shoe inside his belt and said, You think you're going to leave me, huh? Well, let's see how far you get. It turns out that Phil had a habit of hiding Ronnie's shoes whenever they argued to keep her from leaving. <clears throat> he held her down.
he held her down and told her not to even dream about trying to divorce him. That she wouldn't last five minutes on the stand in court. I'm sure he was probably talking about exposing her as a drunk and an unfit mother, etc. Because that's what men in his position do. He was yelling and screaming and acting plain crazy. Beatrice could take no more. She jumped on Phil's back. She told him to let Ronnie up or she would kill him herself. They were all screaming, punching, and hitting each other at this point. Somehow, Beatrice pushed Ronnie into the doorway of her room. She dared Phil to enter, threatening to snatch that wig right off his bald little head. Beatrice didn't back down, but neither did Phil. He threatened to have Ronnie killed the minute she stepped outside the gate. Beatrice told him to stop the foolishness and go to bed, but he announced that he already had a solid gold coffin prepared for Ronnie with a glass top so that he could look at her dead body. He tried to get them to go down to the basement to see it for themselves. They respectfully declined. Ronnie curled up in a ball next to her mother's bed and cried. Beatrice told her to stop it. Ronnie was so scared and hysterical that she was going into convulsions. Beatrice slapped her across the face. She was going to have to pull it together and think of a plan. Her future was on the line. It would either be a straight jacket or possibly the solid gold coffin with the glass on top. Ronnie made up her mind that she was not going to spend another night in that house, but she went to sleep in her mother's bed. She needed that rest for what lay ahead. The next morning, Ronnie and Beatrice started plotting. Ronnie had the name and number of a divorce lawyer that she'd gotten from someone at an AA meeting. In order to escape, Ronnie would need to leave it all behind. She had not bonded with Gary or Lewis, but Dante was her, <clears throat> Dante was her baby. It was gut-wrenching to leave him behind with her purse and credit cards. She would have to send for him later. He was a toddler now and sleeping when Ronnie tearfully left him with his nanny, who didn't have a clue about what was going on. Beatrice told her that the front door was open. Ronnie wanted to go back to get the mate to her shoe. All her other shoes were upstairs. Beatrice told her she was going to have to go barefoot so that Phil wouldn't suspect that she wasn't coming back. When they got outside, Ronnie felt the little rocks and pebbles cutting into her bare feet. At first, there was no sign of him, but Phil was yards away. They talked to him briefly, very cordial, no sign of the blowout from the previous night. He told Beatrice not to let Veronica step on anything sharp. They walked a little faster. They actually made it to the Sunset Strip. They made it out. The first place they went to by cab was not a shoe store but the lawyer's office to begin the divorce process. Days later, Phil was served with divorce papers. Ronnie and Beatrice moved into the Beverly Crest Hotel with Phil footing the bill for everything. Her lawyer, Jay, went to retrieve her belongings, but all Phil sent was a little overnight bag consisting of three shirts, a pair of pants, and a, a huge bra that didn't belong to her. She could forget about seeing her stage outfits, jewelry, makeup, and everyday clothing again. The only thing harder than being married to Phil Spector, Ronnie would find out, was getting divorced from him. He was not supposed to see Ronnie outside of the court, so he called her out at the hotel. He sweet-talked her, saying that he had changed his ways, but that got him nowhere, so he told her that he would get someone to kill her if she continued with the divorce. He even sent his bodyguard, George Brand, over to the hotel with another man, possibly a lawyer who handed Ronnie a contract that would give Phil full custody of the twins. Ronnie wouldn't sign it because her lawyer wasn't present. The lawyer or whoever went to Ronnie's phone, called Phil and handed Ronnie the phone. 
Sophia told her that the man with George was no lawyer at all, but a trained hitman paid to blow Ronnie's brains out if she didn't sign the twins over to him immediately. But it wasn't necessary. Ronnie had not really bonded with Gary and Lewis, and while she loved them, she wasn't prepared for the responsibility of caring for them. George and the lawyer, or hitman, left without her signing. They'd heard all they needed to. $1,300 a month in support Phil was supposed to pay Ronnie was sent to her lawyer's office in Nichols. Outside of the courthouse, Phil would harass and heckle Ronnie and Jay, the lawyer, who he was particularly vicious towards. At a certain point, Phil just turned pitiful, sitting on the courthouse steps. Veronica, please don't do this to me, he begged. Don't leave me. Come back to me. Beatrice was there to witness it all, but Beatrice announced to Ronnie that she would be heading back to New York. Yes, Ronnie was in the midst of a crisis, wasn't she always? And as Phil had predicted, she was going a little crazy after three months of the divorce proceedings. Beatrice was always there to support Ronnie, so much so that it was easy to forget that Beatrice had another daughter who was also troubled, but ultimately more tragic, Estelle. Ronnie seemed to forget this too. Estelle had just given birth to her own daughter, so she needed Beatrice now. Ronnie felt forsaken. Sometimes the hotel switchboard mistakenly put Phil's calls through, and he could be counted on to always reach her when she was at her most vulnerable. This time he wanted to heap more guilt on her than she already felt regarding Dante. Dante is crying himself to sleep at night, crying for his mother. Phil did end up retaining custody of Dante, and with Ronnie having visitation rights, it was always difficult. Ronnie moved back to New York. When Dante was about 11, Ronnie found out that he and the other boys were being denied nourishment from Phil and that he was locking the boys up, keeping them in their rooms except when it was time to go to school. Ronnie managed to get Dante back, but they constantly clashed. He hated the way men reacted to his mother on stage and he hated her drinking. So he elected to go back to California to live with Phil's mother. Her struggles with alcoholism and trying to get her career back continued. She became an oldies but goodies nostalgia act long before she herself was an oldie but goodie. She worked with Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band and had a brief romance with Steven Van Zandt. Billy Joel wrote a song for her and she also worked with Billy Vera. She eventually recorded a version of It's a Heartache, a tune that was later a hit for Bonnie Tyler. None of these collaborations were successful for various reasons. Ronnie's drinking hampered her opportunities in the music industry and those who worked with her eventually lost patience with her. She even fell off the stage once because she was drunk. She tried to reunite with the Ronettes, but Nidra was a wife and mother now, and most of her time was spent on her family and her Christian faith. Estelle had fallen from grace and was battling mental illness. She was in no condition to go back into the music industry, so Ronnie performed with two replacement Ronettes for a few years. Sometimes Ronnie purposely allowed men to see her drunk in order to turn them off, and in only a few relationships following the, the divorce. She decided that she didn't want romance. Ronnie was in her 30s now, and she still wanted to give birth to a child, but without the complications of a relationship. She was backstage at a show, at a show that she was attending but not performing in when Mr. Wright entered her life, though. His name was Jonathan Greenfield, and he gave her a big bear hug when they first met, with permission, of course. He was big and broad-shouldered, and she was very tiny. He had seen her perform four years earlier and thought, now there's a real woman, 
and he promised himself that if he ever got the chance to meet her, he would give her a big hug. He was the stage manager of this show, and she was impressed with how he handled the stage hands and technicians' questions. She was particularly impressed with how he had handled the concerns of a high-strung performer whose musical performance had gone awry. Remember, Ronnie loved a knowledgeable man. Ronnie kept going back to see the show that week, hoping to bump into Jonathan again. The two developed a friendship. He didn't even know that he was being pursued and was very respectful of Ronnie, so much so that his standoffishness started to drive her a little crazy. She soon learned that Jonathan didn't drink, didn't think that he was even in her league, but he came around eventually. He was dependable, loving, and accepting. He was there for her when Dante moved back in with her, when Dante's tantrum resulted in her getting physically hurt, and when it all fell apart and he went to live with Phil's mother. He was there when she was drunk on stage and it negatively affected her performance. And he was there for her after she fell asleep smoking, burning off a considerable amount of her hair. And he supported her as she tried to get back on track career-wise. When somebody had tried to turn Ronnie into a punk singer and Ronnie and punk really did not go together. When Ronnie was 38 years old, she finally realized her dream of getting pregnant with Jonathan's baby. At first, she feared that it might be a tumor, but no. After so many years of wanting, Ronnie's dream of motherhood was coming true, and she was determined not to ruin it. This is what really prompted Ronnie to finally put the bottle away for good. The only bottle in her life would be a baby bottle. Ronnie had been reading an article about premature babies having excellent chances of surviving. Jonathan joked that if premature babies had such a great survival rate, she might as well give birth in and there and get it over with. Soon, Ronnie started to feel like she might be in labor. Jonathan was sure that it was the article messing with Ronnie's head, but they called the doctor anyway. He thought that Ronnie might be constipated. Jonathan went to the drugstore to pick up some medication for her. Time for me to sip some water. <clears throat> While he was gone, all hell broke loose. Or should I say the baby broke loose. Ronnie barely made it to the bathroom in time. The baby just slid out. Ronnie was on the toilet watching in horror as her umbilical cord sank into the toilet bowl. She thought for sure that she'd killed the baby. She shrieked and sobbed. She knew it was too good to be true. Jonathan got back home to quite a scene. Ronnie was lying in bed and told him that she had lost the baby. He asked where it was and she told him in the toilet. He grabbed the child who wasn't breathing and had blue skin. Jonathan felt that the baby could be saved. Soon he was on the phone with paramedics and told them what had happened. Miraculously, the baby started breathing. Ronnie didn't want to see the baby when Jonathan tried to show him to her. She didn't want to get attached. She was so sure he was going to die. Even when the paramedics came to get them, Ronnie was still saying that her baby was going to die. One of them recognized Ronnie. He was a fan. Ronnie and her baby would receive top-notch care. The two-pounder would have to spend time in an incubator, but he would make it. Ronnie and Jonathan named their new son Austin. Austin was truly the miracle of Ronnie's life. Austin had been due in February, but he was born during the Christmas season like somebody else in Ronnie's life. Guess who? Ronnie and Jonathan were officially married on January 16, 1983. 
Due to his premature status, Austin didn't come home until around the time that he had been due. Ronnie was 39 when she gave birth to Austin. She was thankful for him and didn't imagine that having another baby might be in her future. But not long after Austin came home, Ronnie was already having morning sickness. Her doctor tried to tell her that all new mothers have morning sickness and it's perfectly normal. Now, I've never heard of that. But Ronnie felt just as she had felt when she was in the early stages of pregnancy with Austin just a few months earlier. It was fresh in her mind. The doctor told Ronnie that he would administer a pregnancy test and pay for the exam himself if she was pregnant. The doctor had to tear up the bill because Ronnie was indeed pregnant again. The second child was more patient than the first. Ronnie was seven months pregnant when Austin busted through. This baby waited until her eighth month to make its debut. Jason Greenfield was another unassisted home birth. By unassisted, I mean no doctor was present. Jonathan delivered the baby this time and Beatrice was at her daughter's side, so it was slightly less scary but more painful. He was born 10 months after his brother when Ronnie was 40 years old and he was a strapping 3 pounds. Remember, Austin weighed 2 pounds. He only had to stay in the hospital for a month. Ronnie finally had the happy family that she had always desired. In 1986, Eddie Money called Ronnie Spector with an idea to feature her on a song. Ronnie, whose children were now three and two, jumped at the chance to record. The song was Take Me Home Tonight, featuring Ronnie singing an updated Be My Baby in counterpart to Eddie's lead vocal. The song was a hit, Ronnie's first in 20 years. It breathed new life into Ronnie's career. She was in demand as an award show presenter and to perform the song on late night talk shows. She released an album in 1987, and it was not a hit, but that was okay. Ronnie was being looked at as a legend at this point. In the 1980s, Ronnie filed suit against Phil Spector for royalties. She was constantly hearing her voice on the radio and on TV shows, but not seeing a dime. Be My Baby was on the Dirty Dancing soundtrack, which sold about 25 million copies. Back when the Ronettes signed their original record contract, there was no consideration of royalties. Nobody could have known that these songs would still be popular 20 years after they were recorded. The suit dragged on for years and years with Phil appealing no less than 17 times. Ronnie was a member of the Recording Artist Coalition and an outspoken advocate for artists' rights. She lobbied members of Congress to support the financial interests of recording artists. The Ronettes were eventually rewarded $2.6 million. Once all this was settled, Ronnie never heard from Phil again. In 2007, despite Phil's persistent efforts to keep them out, the Ronettes were finally inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame after being turned down on 13 occasions. Ronnie, Estelle, and Nidra stood on the stage together as the Ronettes for the first time in 40 years and were finally given their just due. By this time, Phil Spector had been indicted for murder, so he was a bit preoccupied and couldn't do anything to stop them. Estelle had struggled for years through mental illness and at times homelessness. She passed away in 2009. Their mother, Beatrice, was already gone too, having died from heart disease in 1998. Ronnie enjoyed performing until the end of her days and shared the stage with more modern stars like Amy Winehouse, Lizzo, and others. 
She raised a happy family of boys, although I don't know if she ever reconciled with Dante or established bonds with Gary or Lewis. On January 16, 2021, Phil Spector died at 81 from COVID-19 complications. And that was on Ronnie and Jonathan's 38th wedding anniversary. Ronnie felt little emotion when she got word. Hopefully she was enjoying her last anniversary with anniversary with Jonathan because on January 12, 2022, just four days shy of the one-year anniversary of Phil's passing and her 39th wedding anniversary, 78-year-old Ronnie Spector herself passed away. They say it was from cancer. I find it very odd that Phil died on her wedding anniversary, that they died less than a year apart and in the same season. I also find it odd that Ronnie's son, Austin, was born during the Christmas season, just like Phil. And remember, he was born prematurely. I don't know if it's the same day, but it has to be close. Ronnie and Phil were connected, for better or worse. Life sure is strange. What does it all mean? We may never know, but rest well, Ronnie. This is the end of my first three-part series, mini-series, or whatever you want to call it with rock and roll pioneer Ronnie Spector as the subject. I hope you enjoyed it. I'm Monica. This is Remembering the Misremembered, and I will see you soon with another intriguing and interesting story.